Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, I'm here with Tom and Matt, and we're going to discuss the movie Oppenheimer. We've all seen it. Uh, Tom's seen it twice, but we're going to talk about, first talk about the movie and our reaction to it, what we thought, and then some of the uh, implications of it. But uh, I'm going to let Tom, Tom's kind of our movie expert. So Tom, can you kind of introduce the film for us? Yeah, you know, if you if you haven't seen it, just heads up, we are going to spoil Oppenheimer. Um, also, it's historical, so I, I guess <laughs> history sort of spoiled Oppenheimer. As we know well. how it turns out. Yeah, yeah, and it yes. doesn't. It's not um, good. Yeah, if you haven't seen it and want to see it first, then you'll want to not listen to this until you see uh, the movie. Um, yeah, so I went to see it. Thankfully, in Indianapolis, we have one of 19 theaters that can show it the way Christopher Nolan wanted it to be shown, which is in uh, 70 millimeter IMAX. Uh, it was amazing. Uh, they even as they introduced the, the film, it said it took them three days to put it together. Uh, the real when it was completely together, weighed over 600 pounds. Just an incredible so I've seen it now both in IMAX and in regular format. I mean, the IMAX, it was incredible um, to see it in, in IMAX. Maybe we should start out just our reactions walking out of the film, and then we can start getting into sort of the beat by beat. I was just saying that I, I'm not the brightest movie watcher. I love movies, but it's the one time when I... I tend to just turn the brain off. But this one provoked, I mean, even as you're watching it, it, it does provoke thought and conversation. And there is a kind of richness to it that it, you, you feel it. It's a three-hour film, yeah. but it was a short three hours. You know, yeah. I, I didn't feel it was too long at all. I guess the main character, you guys are more up on Christopher Nolan and all that. Killian Murphy. Yeah. I thought was brilliant. And, and later I heard Robert Downey Jr. talk about to the director. I saw Killian Murphy and Downey and, and Downey said to Christopher Nolan while they were doing the film, I hope you appreciate the sacrifice this guy is giving you to do this part. And you almost feel it that to put yourself here is an actor that just seemed to inhabit and be this role. You know, maybe J Jim Carrey, when he did... Uh, the Andy Kaufman. The Andy Kaufman. Yeah. Uh, that was so painful to watch because he became Andy Kaufman, you know, it literally, I think. And, and that's what I kind of thought with uh, Killian Murphy, that he is just inhabiting this character so well. And it changed Jim Carrey, didn't it? Yes. Jim Carrey went through a psychological break. Yeah. After that. Yeah, I think it was a break for the good. I think Jim Carrey has accepted Jesus in some ways, at yeah. least that he's interested in Jesus and kind of turned away from the Hollywood whole system. But yeah, yeah. yeah just the just the feeling in the uh there's a collective sort of uh energy or something that happens in a theater. And you know, you walk in and the lights go down and, and everyone's sort of hanging onto their edge of the seat, sort of the uh, you're all kind of going through this almost like this emotional roller coaster together. And it's just one of the few times in life where there's like kind of like this communal experience that, you know, yeah. you can't get by just popping in a Blu-ray in your living room, you know? Right. Um, and especially if you're seeing it in 70 millimeter, um, I've seen those movies with Tom and it's just such a, I just wish they made all the movies in 35 millimeter or 70 or whatever. Cause it's <laughs> right. just on, on film. It's just an incredible, I didn't have the opportunity to do that or I definitely would have, but just sitting in the theater and it was a packed, it was a packed house. And there's just a feeling throughout the movie. There was times where I just, you know, bowed my head and just said, Lord have mercy. You know what I mean? With some of the decisions that are being made and some of the things that are being said and things, you know, long story short, I just walked out of the theater. I, it was just such a surreal, almost sort of feeling. I walked out and, 
everybody's sort of talking and laughing and they're on their cell phones and they're in the, getting snacks. And then I walk out and it's beautiful outside and people are eating you know, lunch or whatever, and just laughing and talking and living life. And I just couldn't help but to think about Japan on that yeah. day. And it was August 9th, uh, 1945. I couldn't help but to think about my wife and my nephews and nieces and you know, in Japan was probably a pretty similar day in a lot of ways, you know, and then all of a sudden there was a flash uh, of light that changed everything. I think that that's the big thing that, or at least for me with Oppenheimer, I walked out with this sense of almost like existential, a little bit of existential dread. I guess if it weren't for my faith in Christ, I mean, you could really kind of have a freak out, you know, it just seems like such an inevitable sort of terrible thing that could happen for sure. And, well, that's and not happen to your loved ones, you know? Yeah, this is kind of starting with the movie at the end, but Oppenheimer, when he has the conversation with Einstein in the end of the movie, which, you know, I guess happens at the beginning of the movie, but then you find out what they actually talk about at the end of the movie. You know, they had done the calculations that there was a chance that when they set off the atomic bomb that the entire atmosphere could be destroyed. And that they would destroy the world. And uh, Oppenheimer earlier in the movie had presented the math to Einstein, which I believe I read an article that it wasn't actually Einstein. He presented the math to it was a different scientist. But for the movie's sake, they used Einstein and Einstein, you know, checks their math and that sort of thing. But Oppenheimer says something about that. You know, we were I showed you that math that we were afraid it would destroy the world and and. Einstein said, well, it didn't or something along those lines. And then Oppenheimer says, well, I'm afraid we have. Recognizing the arms race that was then going to happen. Um, yeah. I was just going to say, I wondered about Einstein. You know, you know a lot more than Einstein uh, about Einstein than we do. Um, and do you do you know what his um, his thoughts were on the on this situation? Or do you have any insights on? Because I was wondering that in the movie. I was like. You know, it's it's a little bit ambiguous, but you, clearly Einstein is sort of is pictured as like sort of not down with the effort kind of thing. But I don't know the specifics of his involvement, et cetera. I think Einstein did originally write a letter to Roosevelt explaining the potential to make a weapon with this new scientific understanding. Einstein is characteristic of what a lot of these scientists went through that at first they see the possibility and with the idea they, you know, throughout the movie, they're talking about Germany building the weapon. And of course, a lot of these guys are German Jews that have been forced to flee Germany. And so they, they know that Germany is working on the bomb. Eventually they find out, well, Germany never came close. They just, you know, Hitler didn't have the foresight to put, but at any rate, they then Einstein flips and and kind of like Oppenheimer. In other words, they originally, you know, in that desperate moment, I think they all felt that a developing a weapon was a kind of necessity. And then once they got it, there was wow, we now this thing has to be controlled. And so then Einstein he reverses himself or at least comes out in favor of controlling and disarming. Yeah. Which I think is where in some ways Oppenheimer comes out in the end as well of, you know, cause he's against, you know, later half of the movie is sort of set in motion by him being against the H bomb because of the, the more destructiveness of the, the H bomb than even the atomic bomb. Like I, I left the movie very quiet. Uh, Davina and I went to see it on a nice romantic uh, anniversary uh, date. <laughs> we went to Oppenheimer, uh, and I just leaving the movie. She was asking me, "What did you think of it?" And I, I couldn't really answer at first. Other than the, I mean, I think all of us would agree it's a masterpiece. Like this is yeah. one of the greatest films I've seen in years. But just the heaviness of it. Even the heaviness of what's on screen and the heaviness, you know, maybe we'll get to later that's not on screen, right. but is, is certainly referred to. I think the they, first thing I did was I just I think I messaged my wife and just said, I love you. 
Yeah. You know, I want you to know that I love you. You yeah. know. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it it does it presents that, and it, I I would say this that I wish you know in the movie there is a portrayal of Oppenheimer as a kind of torn figure. Mm-hmm. And I think we like that about him. Mm-hmm. In other words, that he was one who was torn. I wish that he was more torn than he was by the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah. In other words, he always will defend that. He'll never backtrack. And yet he does realize that what they've unleashed and the, I think the, the movie, the film, does a great job giving us this figure who is quite disturbed by what he's yeah. participated in. I guess yeah. that's kind of an important question, and you guys will be able to answer this a lot easier than, than I would, but how accurate you know, is the portrayal? Uh, is there a lot of license taken there? I, I don't know a ton about Oppen. This is, you know, this is like kind of like my introduction to Oppenheimer in a lot of ways. I mean, I knew about him and stuff like that, but yeah. I, I guess I don't know. I don't know if he was if he was truly torn or if he was. There are two things to to say. First of all, he was he, as a young man. He was quite disturbed. He was quite disturbed young man that had mental problems. This is brought out in the film only briefly, and we don't quite know what to make of it. And that is, he he tried to murder his tutor. Mm. I mean, that's that's, yeah. that's that the implication. Yeah, the, the yeah. poisoned apple episode. Wow. Yeah, and his parents, you know, in real life, they don't show any of this. They kind of pass over it, like. But actually, his parents came to England, and Cambridge was ready to. He nearly got kicked out of the. The college and then he goes into psychotherapy and he mm. goes through a, a series of psychotherapists none of which is in the film mm. and so he he's deeply disturbed but of course maybe this is part of the character that here is somebody who's kind of on the edge anyway and the science that he's doing i mean the uncertainty principle you know heisenberg's science it is kind of otherworldly in in many ways. It uh, reaches way beyond common sense. The thing that comes out in the book that is not there in the film, you know, Gene Tatlock is also then very much interested in psychotherapy mm-hmm. and w- uh, hopes to become a therapist. And so I, I think it's quite interesting that th- that is kind of there in the background, this deep, psychological disturbance that maybe by the time he's an adult he's he's reconciled this to a degree but of course he does agonize you know the the scene that i think is directly is historical in which he goes in to see truman and he says i have blood on my hands Mm. and truman you know says don't ever let that cry baby in here again you know Wow, yes, yeah. uh, that that was a chilling. Uh, yeah, and it was historical. Yeah, yeah. I was I was thinking. I was wondering if. Uh, and by the way, Gary Oldman just is amazing uh, as Harry Truman. Yeah. And just that brief little. There's a couple times where the actors are just briefly on the screen, but they just steal uh, the show. Casey Affleck was one of them. I mean, he was just another yeah. sort of chilling character where the movie kind of takes a turn i was wondering if maybe oppenheimer might even be you know this is kind of a loose term but sort of on the spectrum right because he talks about being able to a lot of times people who are on the spectrum are just extraordinarily gifted you know in a lot of different ways their minds are just they have like a beautiful mind it's just in a different way and tom even described this movie uh i saw what he meant after he said it because i was asking him about it before i saw and he said well think like a cross between like jfk and a beautiful mind which I thought was a really great uh, description, you know? And then there was a scene where he talked about, uh, or someone asked him, he said, you know, it doesn't matter if you can read music. What's important is that you can hear the music, you know? And yeah. basically Oppenheimer said, I can hear the music. What he meant was, is that, I mean, there's been other great artists, like, you know, and Kanye West has talked about how he sees music, that he literally, I don't know how that works, but that's a thing. I, I looked it up, I forget what it's called, but he can literally you know, think of a, of a beat or a song or whatever. He sees the notes or whatever. He sees the music somehow. Um, I know Quentin Tarantino, he writes screenplays and he sees the movie. He sees where the camera is. He sees all this stuff. And it's like, you just got to wonder about some of these brilliant, beautiful minds 
someone who could tap into the physics of the universe in such a world changing world historical way you know there's a fine line it's like the cliche there's a fine line between you know the genius and madness yeah and i think nolan does such a good job of showing that uh which really came out for me the second time i saw it which by the way we we did go past the the opening line which is on the screen about prometheus stealing the fire from the gods and then is tied up on his chair and tortured for is it all eternity i don't remember how the the line goes which this is all you know we can say that it's all based on the book about oppenheimer called uh american prometheus with that idea and i think nolan's trying to as paul you pointed out is trying to picture him as a tortured soul really throughout his life but then certainly after it after trinity as well talking about the seeing music early on there's several times you know he's in bed and he's struggling but he's seeing like atoms and you know sort of all these things coming together um and splitting and all the stars and all of that um so you know he's trying to show him seeing Mm -hmm. the music yeah. yeah, yeah, which is which is just uh, just a, such a brilliant way to tell a story. Again, just the the way you know, the movie itself is actually just like a great movie. Um, but it's interesting. I didn't know about some of the stuff that Paul was talking about. Like we could probably sit here and, and psychoanalyze Oppenheimer all day, you know. But the fact that he you know was going to kill his tutor, and it's interesting. You know, I love the Bhagavad Gita. It's it's probably my favorite spiritual text outside of the definitely one of them outside of the of the the Holy Bible. But it's a beautiful book, and that's like the one time you know where Vishnu, you know, it's like he uh, he says, "Now I've become death, the destroyer of all worlds." And it's like so he was going to kill his tutor, you know, and it's like he was going to maybe become death to that one guy, and it's like now he's become the death, the destroyer of all worlds, or whatever. It's a really poetic sort of psychoanalytic sort of puzzle. But it, the Bhagavad Gita, other than that, though, it's just a you can't help but to read that and and come away with a sort of like this beautiful idea of the good and the beautiful and the true it's it's a profound work and it's like it's just interesting that like that was it was a perfect line you know it's a i don't know if that really even happened but it should have if it didn't yeah no, oh he, he did say it yeah, at the yeah. trinity i mean that's uh it's pretty yeah. amazing you know there yeah. is religion sprinkled throughout in an odd sort of way the name of the test site is trinity from a poem by Dunn about the Trinity, about the Trinity, the Holy the, Trinity, the Holy yeah. Trinity, that uh, actually Gene Tatlock was a great fan of Dunn and shared this poem with Oppenheimer. For a guy as cultured as Oppenheimer is, you know, his education is through the uh, Ethical Cultural School that. Uh, it's where kind of non-religious Jews were educated in New York City. And what they're educated in by the name of the school is not so much Orthodox Judaism, but in, you know, an ethic, a kind of, I don't know if it's a secular ethic, but not a uh, an ethic grounded in religion. Yeah, humanism, right? It, the, the, there is this kind of rarefied air with these scientists that is very much engaged with the pursuit of truth. But of course, by truth, we mean a very narrow, scientific, and then a mechanical manipulation of that truth for evil purposes in the end. To call the experiment where you test the atomic bomb that's going to in turn kill at least 200,000 people, uh, Mm -hmm. to name it after the Holy Trinity, I mean, you know, you can't help, or at least as a Christian, to think, man, there's something really diabolical about all this, right? Um, and even in the in the sort of the naming and the, the the Holy Trinity, the God of peace, the God of love, the God of compassion, the God of forgiveness, the the God that's revealed in our Lord Jesus Christ dying on a cross, you know, and forgiving the sins of the world, to call the test for the atomic bomb Trinity is such a perverse idea that almost seems like almost like a sort of inhuman invention or something right yeah yeah i agree a lot of these guys are willing to work for the germans 
or the Americans. In other words, their pursuit of scientific truth does not necessarily come with the same high IQ morally that they have scientifically. Mm-hmm. Well, that's you have the one um, German guy that came to help at Los Alamos, and uh, he's with the British contingent. And he says, well, when did you become British? And he said, well, when Hitler told me I wasn't a German. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, it's a construct, right? Yeah. What do you think of, uh, so obviously it, it's playing with the time periods. You're going back and forth between the trial of Oppenheimer to get his renewed uh, clearance. Is it Strauss? His sort of confirmation to be on the, the cabinet. And then you have whatever the modern day in that moment is. Um, wh- what did you think of the way Nolan did that? It, that didn't hang me up at all. And by the way, shout out to Robert Downey Jr. with a, an incredible performance. I, I would be, I don't know. I don't know how he's not, you know, it's for best supporting actor. It's like, man, who's going to, who's going to do better than that? You know, no, um, he, he has to win. It was like a role of a lifetime. I mean, he was just, he was the scene, you know, when he's in black and white and he's just getting so angry with the aide or whoever it is right before he's about to see the press and all that. It's just like, you just felt his, you know, it was, it was just such a cool performance, but no, I felt like I was in good hands. The whole movie, I felt like I was in good hands. Like I I was, I wasn't being confused. I wasn't like, what's going on here? You know, you kind of hate that feeling sometimes where it's like, you're just super confused. I did not feel that that way. Did you? No, I didn't. Go My ahead. oldest daughter, so she's 15, and uh, maybe I was a bad parent for taking her to see this, but I felt like it was important uh, for her to see this film. Uh, she was a little confused by it, but she was able, in the end, to be able to figure it out, um, the going back and forth. But, Paul, what about you? Well, the thing that it did for us, in other words, here is the guy who, at, at, in two moments of his life, He's reached kind of the heights of adulation. Here is the guy who is the father of the atomic bomb. He wins World War II for us, you know, if you want to think of it in those terms. Mm. And then just a few years later, the crowd turns, you know. Suddenly, he is the enemy of the people, probably, you know, a Soviet spy, according to Hoover. He's demonized uh, and shamed. And that's a great point. That's a great point. It's part of the seeing of the both sides of the character that both of these things are are true of him. Normally, we we don't picture. I think that's more true. The the demon, the sacralization and demonization, I think, do tend to go together. It's like Kierkegaard said, you know, the crowd is untruth. (laughs) You know, we know that in the, the, the Christian story, you know, this is the nature of the crowd. Yeah, it certainly seemed he was also, you know, in that last hour where you switch to the trial fully, both um, that he's trying to really hit on the evil of the pursuit of power. And then, you know, he won me over with the JFK reference when he mentions that Kennedy is one of the guys that votes against confirming Strauss. A little nod to Oliver Stone there, I think. Yeah, I, I also thought that one actor that, was incredible and i didn't know a lot about him other than he's the elf in tim allen's santa claus movies robbie who's the sort of oppenheimer's conscious almost throughout the movie and he has this amazing quote which i don't know if he actually said it or not but when they're at los alamos and he is trying to figure out what oppenheimer is going to do and he says, well, you're spread too thin. And he wants Robbie to to do that part. And Robbie says, you're going to drop a bomb that falls on the just and the unjust. And he says, I don't want three centuries of physics, the, the end of three centuries of physics to be a weapon of mass destruction. He seems sort of the almost like the moral center of the movie. And I thought he did a phenomenal job. Yeah, I also thought that the the women, um, you know, Florence Pugh, I think is how you say her last name, like the mistress. I thought she was fantastic. I thought she did a great job. And then um, Emily Blunt, you know, the power dynamics that are at play there are just really 
meant to be disturbing, right? I mean, Paul talked about how, you know, he's talked before about how you get like these sort of bureaucrats and these managers and these people, you know, and there, there's just sort of, um, they're all almost unquestioning and, and being swept up into just the the momentum of, you know, the Manhattan Project and the war and how to end the war. And um, Paul, you know, at some point should probably talk a little bit about, because I think he knows more about this than any of us, is the that the war, by the time that they drop the bombs, is over. That's the big debate. In my mind, there's no debate to be had. They're making this bomb in defense against Germany, right? And of course, well, by the time they finish, the Germans have already surrendered. You know, they don't hesitate. They actually, there's a discussion group that begins at Los Alamos. Wait a minute. We're making this bomb to for the Germans, and they've been defeated, not for the Japanese, because the Japanese, by this point, they seem clearly to have lost the war, and some of the scientists were questioning. Oppenheimer, he wasn't. And, and in that sense, we wish he might have been more torn than he was, because I think he just goes on. The train's up and running, you know, you can't get off this thing. We're, we're in pursuit of the truth here. There's kind of a contradiction in Oppenheimer historically that maybe you fill it in the film. Historically, you know, he's going to say both things. He the, the scene with Truman where he says, well, I feel like I have blood on my hands. But then later in life, he's actually going to repeat Truman's sentiment and said, well, it wasn't my decision. It was the politicians who decided. And he almost has to have that attitude as the director of Los Alamos. That is, hey, I'm just the scientist. I'm not a politician. I'm not a man of the world. We're going to make this thing, and we're going to turn it over to the politicians. So I The same defense that the Nazis made, right? I'm just a bureaucrat. I'm just a bureaucrat. I'm just following orders. Yeah. And I think he kind of wanted to take that position to cleanse his own conscience later in life. There's a line in the documentary, The Day After Trinity, Groves, who, by the way, Matt Damon was phenomenal uh, in that role, where they said something along the lines of, well, all the money had been put out. And so the question was, why did you go ahead and bomb Japan when the war was won? And it was, well, the money had already been put out. All the mechanism was up and running. You know, we couldn't stop it at that point. And it's like, you what? Yeah. It's just the bureaucracy of evil of, well, we had to do it. We got two, $2 billion dollars invested. We can't waste our money. We got to use this thing. Yeah. Yeah. But the sad thing is, kept on calling it Oppenheimer's gadget, which is interesting, right? But they, yep. they, you know, they, they, the gadget worked. They tested it. They knew that it worked. And so now it was just to scale, right? They could build it to, they could scale it, um, you know, uh, which is just uh, awful. But to me, what is happening here, and again, I, this is just speculation, and I'm not making accusations or anything like that, but it, if, if it's true that the war was over, and if it was true that his generals were telling him, we don't, you know, they're going to, they've, they've basically surrendered and Germany's been defeated, you know, basically there's, there is the the whole issue of sort of paybacks for Pearl Harbor, right? There, there is a sort of issue of racism in the country where you have the Japanese internment camps and things like that. You have uh, all sorts of political things that are at work, but the big thing that you have possibly is terrorism. Doesn't Truman say in the movie, we used two so that they knew that we we were willing to keep on using them? You know, so in other words, if a, if a superpower has an atomic bomb and they're willing to use it and they're willing to keep using it, that is such a powerful psychological tool to inspire terror, psychological terror, spiritual, cultural. In other words, they're saying, if you guys don't, you know, sort of do what we want you to do, we can can wipe out your entire existence we can we can blow your whole country you know japan's an island it's like we can destroy your whole island your whole way of life all of your sacred places and um you know all, all the places where your ancestors lie in other words like there's a there's a deep psychological 
thing that's happening here. There's also what Tom was talking about, you know, an arms race and all this stuff. And so it certainly, right. It was meant to, in some way, inspire. It was it meant to be, it was meant to be all inspiring, you know, like, oh my God, you know, this is crazy. Like the two, you know, hundreds of thousands of people dead. They have this weapon. It's like, of course we, you know, surrender. Don't wipe us off the face of the earth. I do think that there might be an element of that in this is that you know the united states is the only country that's ever been willing to actually do use it that's just the facts it of course does result in what oppenheimer and these guys are afraid of and that is an arms race where the you know there's a comment in the movie where they say yeah you know until they build a bigger bomb right there's another movie called the it's a japanese movie uh called the children of nagasaki it's by a japanese director and it's a it's not a documentary it's a film and it takes place in Japan right after the bombing of uh, Hiroshima. And it's in taking place in Nagasaki. And so you follow this family in Nagasaki who are Christians. It's, I, I'm wondering if the director is a Christian because, I mean, they're clearly uh, Catholic, this family. And uh, so the bomb drops and they talk about the leaflets that are also dropped. That essentially is saying exactly what you said, Matt, that the leaflets were dropped from the Americans saying you need to get your government to surrender or we will keep doing this to all your cities to incite that fear. There's basically four alternatives. And we know that Truman was aware of all four alternatives. He had actually written this out. And so Truman's innocent, you know, Truman is uh, uh, in the film and in reality is practical. I don't know if simple is the right word, but there was more mediocre. He, he's, he's highly mediocre. Yeah. yeah and so the, the four options are, they, if we don't drop the bomb, we're going to have to invade. And actually I've been to that Bay in Kyushu where they said they would invade. And the estimates, of course, that the government were putting out is something like 100,000 to a million casualties just on the American side. And they were basing this on the casualties from Okinawa and Iwo Jima. So that was it. Okay, we can invade. Number two is just keep doing what we're doing. That is, by this time, the Japanese Navy had been more or less obliterated. And so American warships have cut off supplies to Japan and they could have just starved them out because they're not going to be able to receive supplies. Number three is they knew by this time that Stalin and the Russians were going to enter the war. And of course, this is the big question. We don't know if the Russians entering a war, all of these events, the Russians invade Manchuria the same day that the bomb is dropped on Nagasaki. And it's, you know, why did Truman, it seems like suddenly he's eager to drop the bomb. He knows the Russians are invading. And we know in his own documents that the feeling was when Russia enters the war, the Japanese are, are going to recognize, oh, we're, we're undone. You know, we're completely defeated. And, of course, the fourth thing is to drop the atomic bomb. So those were the four options open to Truman. The orthodox view is, oh, he dropped the bomb because that was going to be the way to end the war, that they're going to see this devastation. The problem with that is, well, actually, most of the cities in Japan have more or less been obliterated by traditional bombing by napalm tokyo is more or less wiped out i don't know if this came out in the film it may not have you know oppenheimer is uh, helping choose targets and he lists cities in japan and what oppenheimer wants in other words some people had said hey why don't we just demonstrate the bomb where it won't kill anybody and just show them and oppenheimer was actually against that he said, well, no, we need to show in a city, and it has to be a city intact to show the destructive power of the bomb. 
and Hiroshima had not been bombed. By the way, when Truman is describing this after the event, he keeps referring to Hiroshima as if it's a military base. It's not. It's just a city in Japan. He kept talking like, oh, you know, we're just killing their soldiers. And as you know, it was civilians. As civilians and children and, you know, just everybody is obliterated. And, of course, the irony in Nagasaki is, and is Nagasaki is the traditional Christian mm-hmm. part of Japan, that for 200 years, the people in Nagasaki had gone underground and they had survived persecution and martyrdom for 200 years. And they built a chapel, Utakami Chapel, there in Nagasaki, the largest— Cathedral. Cathedral. It's a cathedral that is the largest cathedral in Asia. And that is the place that the martyrs, you know, when they had to step on the image of Jesus or the image of Mary, that was precisely the site that they did it at, that there were all of these martyrs, and that was why the chapel was located there. And so here is the a population, the concentrated populations of Christians in Japan. And I'm not saying that one city was worse than another, but the, the notion, you know, at least uh, uh, Truman was lying in, he, in both cases that, that it was primary military. But if you're thinking uh, just in terms of, you know, what was Nagasaki, Nagasaki was n- historically a city with this rich history of Christianity in Japan. My family and I have been to the museum there in Nagasaki where the 26 martyrs were crucified. Six of them were priests. One was a boy, like 14 or 15 years old. And from the cross, this priest, Mickey, he preaches the gospel as they're killing him and torturing him. And so that's why that cathedral was there. And they used the cathedral then as the marker of where they're going to drop the bomb. Are they doing this for military reasons? No, they're doing it to obliterate these people. And, of course, the immediate deaths are the two priests in the cathedral and about a dozen congregants who had meant there, and then about 50,000 Christians. Out of a total of about 60,000 people, most of the people surrounding that that cathedral were Christian. So here is the great irony. Oppenheimer even says this. Well, we have to save Western civilization. Well, uh, is this the way, you know, is this the means? And then the other thing is, okay, was this a, a necessity? Did this have to be done? Of course, there's a kind of revisionist understanding, but what I'm about to describe to you is not revisionist at all. That is, this is happening almost immediately. This is William Leahy, President Truman's chief of staff, wrote in his 1950 memoir, the use of this barbarous weapon at Hiroshima and Nagasaki was of no material assistance in our war against Japan. The Japanese were already defeated and ready to surrender. In being the first to use it, we adopted an ethical standard common to the barbarians of the Dark Ages. I was not taught to make war in that fashion, and wars cannot be won by destroying women and children. The commanding general of the U.S. Army Air Forces, Harold Arnold, indicated his views on a, in a public statement of only 11, 11 days after Hiroshima was attacked. This was August 17th, and a New York Times reporter asked him whether the atomic bomb caused Japan to surrender. Arnold said that the Japanese position was hopeless even before the first atomic bomb fell, because the Japanese had lost control of their own air. According to William uh, Admiral William Halsey, it was a mistake. The scientists had this toy and they wanted to try it out, so they dropped it. Fleet Admiral Chester Nimitz, commander-in-chief of the Pacific Fleet, stated in a public address at the Washington Monument two months after the bombings that the atomic bomb played no decisive part from a purely military standpoint 
in the defeat of Japan. General Dwight Eisenhower stated in his memoirs that when notified by Secretary of War Henry Stimson of the decision to use atomic weapons, he voiced to him my grave misgivings, first on the basis of my belief that Japan was already defeated and that dropping the bomb was completely unnecessary, and secondly, because I thought that our country should avoid shocking world opinion by the use of a weapon whose employment was, I thought, no longer mandatory as a measure to save American lives. He later publicly declared it wasn't necessary to hit them with that awful thing. Even the General Curtis LeMay, who had innovated the fire bombings in Tokyo, declared publicly a month after the bombing, the atomic bomb had nothing to do with the end of the war at all. And Truman's political advisors, though, overruled the military, and specifically Douglas MacArthur, uh, who would retain the emperor despite the unconditional surrender. And that's the thing I didn't mention, is that actually, uh, and, and the Americans knew this because they're reading Japanese cables. They know exactly what would have been and would not have been acceptable if they had allowed the Japanese to keep the emperor, which they're going to do anyway, if they had said that up front, the Japanese were ready to surrender and the Americans knew that. It's just stunning when you lay it out that way. It's just, it's just, it's so overwhelming almost, you know? So um, why did they do it? You know, it's hard to say, but like you said, well, it was they they were afraid of the Soviet Union at this point. They wanted to impress, you know, the Soviet Union. And uh, we might we I don't know that we can ever answer why did they do it, but we can answer what were the consequences. You know, and I and I aside from the hundreds of thousands of people who were killed, Christians, you know, killed by quote unquote Christians. Um, you know, who, who were making all these decisions. I don't know, maybe they were, you know, they went to church that morning and then they did, you know, they left the church and they decided, you know, the, they made the plans or, or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. You know, it just leaves you almost like speechless. And, at the... and that's the, that's the thing. In other words, this wonderful movie about this interesting period and about this just fascinating character. And I, but I think that what we need to do is step back and say, you know, can we name evil? Can we say what evil is? We can't. I mean, the thing that I was going to say just a minute ago is the other thing that we know happened, the consequences, was the terror that it inspired. That I mean, we we know that, right? So we can ask why they do it. But we know that it was definitely, it seems to be, the movie Oppenheimer seems to be about power. Uh, they call Oppenheimer, you know, he's running the little town there in Los Alamos and they say, you know, he's the mayor, he's the sheriff, he's the head science, you know, he's, he runs the, he's, he is the head and Oppenheimer, you know, kind of walks the, the walk and, you know, you can tell he's a confident man, you know, he's, uh, he's running the show. He's, you know, he, he, they, they paint that picture he from the beginning, right. When they put him over the project and he's always the, uh, sort of like the leader, right. Uh, I can't. Lawrence, I think, is who he's playing, says the line, um, you're not just self-important, you're actually important to Oppenheimer when he's trying to get him to close down the uh, union, unionizing meetings. Yes. Yeah. 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 And, and then, then uh, it's Matt Damon. on the most important person in the world or yeah. something like that. Yeah. I mean, that's a heck of a thing, right? I mean, Matt yeah. Damon, when he first talks to Oppenheimer, is basically saying, well, we all know, you know, that you're you're sort of like this arrogant, you know, self-important, brilliant. The point is, though, is that the whole thing is about the power struggle between, Stra you know, the whole issue with Strauss and with Oppenheimer and, of course, with the empire, America, you know, um, and that we're, you know, it, it could be it's like, OK, well, what else happened? Well, it could be easily argued that it was a sort of a, an, an act of imperialistic terror. Because Japan then, you know, we, if you just look at the map, all, we set up all these, uh, you know, bases there, you know, we have aircraft care, we have huge, some of the biggest uh, American installations uh, in the world in Japan, we start, we begin to start to surround China, we're closer to Russia, 
ja- you know, the Japanese constitution, I don't know if it was abolished, Paul, or if it was rewritten, or then they, they wrote it into there. They, were, they, 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 they could not go to war and all this. In other words, they had become almost a vassal in some ways of the empire. I, again, I, I can't speculate as to like why they did it, but we know what happened after they did it. You know, um, they brought that whole region um, under, and, and by the way, the economics, uh, if you look back, Noam Chomsky talks about this, that he says the height of American uh, economic success was World War II. And right after World War II, it was like the apex of capitalism, right? And he says that that's whenever we kind of hit the, you know, the, we were on the mountaintop and it's been sort of a, a decline from there. But there was a, some years there where um, the industrial military complex, of course, right, like saw the opportunity for power for uh, a vast, vast billions and billions of do- perhaps trillions of dollars. I don't know the numbers, but ridiculous amounts of of money that have been made, um, you know, both by private company, you know, the Lockheed Martins of the world, you know, the Boeings of the world, wh- whoever else, um, you know, that are, that are involved in all this stuff. And so in other words, like, we don't, I don't know why, but we know what happened. And that is, is that there was a boom in the U.S. economy. We were able to, you know, have a critical uh, place in the region there in Japan. The people, you know, the world was awed by the power and our willingness to use it, right? And and we've been sort of the superpower ever since. And it's precisely because, I think, of our willingness to use these weapons of mass destructions that at least has a giant part in all this. So here are the most cultured people. I mean, that's that's the thing that's fascinating about this. I mean, these the the Oppenheimer. He's he's among the brightest people in the world, dealing with the brightest people in the world, and he's not just a scientist. He's he's cultured in, you know, literature in art. You know, here is the the depth of the culture, and of course, what the the film does for us that that we enjoy this kind of richness, but of course, where this is taking us is to oblivion. That is that there there is a kind of absence at the very center of this great intellect, cultural icon, Uh, not just him, but, but the kind of the gathering of the forces. And it's, it's nearly irresistible. In other words, we're, we're as you're watching the film, I think we're caught up in this sense. Oh, we've got to do this thing. You know, there's no choice. And this is a great triumph when we're enabled to create this, this weapon. You feel it. There was nobody who was able to voice a counter opinion that would have been heard or was heard that said, well, wait a minute. Yeah, I think that's the key is because you mentioned that um, they do have that meeting at Los Alamos where this the some of the scientists are saying, hey, Germany has surrendered, which I think gets to the point that David French on his podcast made the point that uh, it's easy to forget. They really thought Hitler was going to get the bomb once they figured out the atom could be split, which is a great scene when they have that that scene where the the it comes across that oh they've figured out the atom can be split and Oppenheimer does the math and says no it, it can't and then you know they in the next room they're showing that it can be be split but they thought Hitler was going to get it and so that i think the whole movie up until that meeting at Los Alamos is we have to get it before Hitler gets it because Hitler will destroy everyone uh, for his own power, which probably would have happened, right? It really probably would have used it, but thankfully he was an anti-Semite, as Oppenheimer points out, so he's not using the best minds um, to get at it. But then they have that meeting where they say, okay, now Germany surrendered. Why are we still using, as Matt said, the gadget? What What's the purpose of this now? The thing that we didn't haven't said yet, which I think is a huge part of the movie by the way and it is important to remember that it's easy for us to play monday morning quarterback you know and say oh you know they shouldn't have uh but in the moment you know if they were now 
remember they might have known things that the rest of us didn't know right like the obviously the intelligence they might know that well germany has been defeated you know japan has surrendered it's like but the american people don't know that you know so so we don't have access to all that you know that information that they have but nonetheless, you know, so we have these boys going over and dying on the beaches. And, you know, I have, you know, as a hospice chaplain, have patients who tell me that their, um, you know, that their husband never came home from the war. He died in France and things like that. So, you know, in the moment, they are scared, right? Uh, they're, they're scared that this could happen to us. And it's like, we got to get them before they get us. That's always been, you know, how this things works. But the, the big thing, though, that we haven't talked about, and this is a major theme in the movie, is Oppenheimer's left wing uh, sort of politics, you know, that he's going to these different groups that are, um, you know, that they're, they're, they're communists and Oppenheimer's kind of, he's, you know, uh, not committed to being a communist, but he is interested. He, he, like Paul said, he's very cultured. He's well-read. He is thinking about, he says in the movie, I think there was ideas, you know, that they had that I was interested in and I wanted to learn more about it. And my point is, is that the other thing that I think is happening here is you have the United States, it could be argued, right, that through, throughout history that there have been in, in places like South America and all over the world, you know, the different coups, in other words, imperialistic acts and things like that, right? There could be a fascist sort of element here at work, right? And of course, uh, that's a sort of far right uh, political sort of authoritarianism, you know, an imperialism and Oppenheimer, this is the very thing. This is how they hold him in suspicion, right? That is, in other words, if you are not, uh, if you're, there was the whole McCarthyism, the whole issue of what was happening there, where um, anyone that was even remotely associated with uh, left-wing politics, communism, socialism, which is a different thing than communism, but even if people were sort of left-wing leaning, they were quite literally held in suspicion. They were followed by the FBI. Apparently, if you were, you know, far right, if you were down for the cause, if you were fascist, if you were uh, a hardcore capitalist, you know, and you didn't have any sort of left leanings, you were you were good to go, you know. But Oppenheimer always kind of had that shadow, you know, looming over him that he had been interested and in, that he had been with these women and, and different things. And that was, I think, that was the thing that was intolerable. That was the thing that because of the, you know, such the staunch uh, sort of opposition that the United States had at that time and still have towards any type of, uh, you know, democratic, democratically social, you know, democratic socialists or any type of, I mean, remember, we're overthrowing governments all over the world. You know, we're, we're, we know now that the CIA was involved in all these different coups and things like this all over the world, precisely to put a stop to democratically elected socialists. So in other words, the United States sees this as a real force to be reckoned with. The fact that Oppenheimer was so deeply, uh, that's the thing that's such a paradox about him, because obviously he had like that sensibility somewhere in there, right, where he was, uh, you know, the labor, the labor, the party, the workers, all that stuff. In the book, uh, Chevalier, so you have the Chevalier incident um, that they put him on trial for, for believing that Chevalier gives the secrets to uh, the Soviet Union of the atomic bomb. And Chevalier wrote a book about uh, Oppenheimer that essentially said he was part of the Communist Party and that he even led their sort of group. Uh, and then he tells Oppenheimer, this is, I want to write this book about you and sort of tell everything about it and Oppenheimer essentially says well that's not me that's I wasn't like that and I think the paradox that we've got a, a couple times comes out in Teller the guy who creates the h-bomb and then ends up testifying against him and saying you shouldn't clear him has this line where he says no one knows what you believe to Oppenheimer and then he says do you and I think that's very clear from the historical Oppenheimer of going back and forth. It's like, do you, do you know what you believe? Because you think you have blood on your hands, but then also you're justifying the use of the bomb. You're a communist, but you're not a communist, you know, with all the, the different women. I think you even see like that. Are you a human humanist? Do you, are you following the Gita? Are you a Christian? Are you a Jew? Who, who are you? Are you a married man? Are you an adult? You know, 
Um, and and by the way, it could be, you know, remember, Paul likes to bring this out, that even St. Peter, we can really be swept up by the, the dynamics of power, fear, uh, the crowd, um, even someone as brilliant as Oppenheimer. You know, that maybe he learned how to sort of uh, and maybe it was just to get women or whatever. Right. Uh, and he learned how to sort of play the game and to kind of fit in and to kind of. But it, but maybe he himself was sort of um, powerless against against these sort of forces that, by the way, maybe demonic forces at work, you know, um, for lack of a better word. But just sort of the the force of uh, the, the crowd or the um you know Girardian sort of uh thing there you know but I, I think that's a that's a key point and that's why they spend so much time on that by the way uh on the fact that he was you know left-leaning possibly communist but there was sort of a line and Paul and Tom that's a great analysis you know to sort of it's like well who who is this guy does he even know uh you know we've talked a lot before about brilliant people that we're not quite sure you know the chomsky talks about there's a huge or no it was norman finkelstein that talked about there was this huge book written on obama it's like his life it's the it's this huge tome i can't remember the name of it uh but you know he goes through but basically on the last pages he just describes obama as just sort of being sort of uh, empty and not really standing for anything he's just kind of has to be like what he needs to be and that's kind of how he makes his way uh in the world but when we're coming up against unbelievably strong forces at work here, right? We're talking about capitalism. We're talking about the distribution of wealth on the other side. We're asking the question is like the unthinkable question of, you know, is has the United States engaged in sort of imperialistic, authoritarian, fascist sort of tactics, you know, uh, around the world, you know, displacing governments, et cetera. I'm not making accusations. I'm just saying that this is this is kind of like what's at play here, right? In other words, who's going to win the day? That was the big thing back then. It was like, we have to stomp out communisms, even socialism. Uh, we had to put a stop to this. Why? Because the capitalists who are running the military industrial complex and who the people, the bureaucrats, the people who are making the the money off of all this and running the world uh, because of the power, they need capitalism and uh, American sort of uh, hegemony to be that helps them, right? It, it, it kind of makes sense, right? That you got to kind of stomp out any sort of like distribution of wealth or, or things like that. It's like that's not capitalism. So I think that all those forces are at play, but it's really interesting with Tom's, the point that he's bringing there, that it's like, well, Oppenheimer, as cultured, as brilliant, as genius as he is, what's there in terms of like his moral, you know, that the morals are being called into question for sure, just in his sex life, right? If you don't really have an identity that's grounded in something other than it, it could be just like winning a championship. Paul's talked about this. It's like, well, is your identity? What's your, you know, you're you're about you're a basketball player. You know, what do you want? You know, and it's like, well, I just want to win another title or, or whatever. It's like, yeah, but who are you? Who are you? Well, I just want to win another title or whatever. You know, it's like, yeah. well, maybe I just want to make a better bomb, or I want to become the best physicist, or I want to do whatever. But uh, at the end of the day, that identity doesn't seem to provide uh, all the. That certainly not the moral sort of uh, center, you know, that that you would need if you're in charge of the Manhattan Project. There was one other scene that I forgot that also gets to that point when they're at Los Alamos and he's asking Robbie to come on board and he's in the full military uniform. And Robbie is essentially says, yeah, I'll be a part of this, but you got to take that crap off. That's right? good. That's not who you are. But he's. He is at that point. Like he's yeah. fully on board. He's ready. He's ready. Yeah. To be a soldier. Yep. He's ready to be whatever he has to be. If he has to be a communist, if he has to be a fascist, if he has to be a married man, if he has to be, you know, with these other women, if he has to be with his colleagues, if he has to, it, it seems to be maybe the point that Christopher Nolan's trying to make, at least in some ways. And that's what he says about the film that he says that Robert Oppenheimer is the most important man to have ever lived. And of course, what he means is that this event is really determinative of, of so many things, that the, the creation of, of the atomic age. But yeah, what, you, what you're describing, it is that all of these forces, which is kind of interesting, you know, the communism, 
and communism, you know, the people are surrounding him. Gene Tatlock, actually Kitty Oppenheimer's like her fourth husband. Uh, her second husband was killed as uh, he went to Spain to fight, you know, the fascists in Spain. He promised, I'm going to be the first over the, the barrier, and he was, and they killed him immediately. That was that. And so she's a, a communist. Chevalier is a communist. And, of course, I don't know that it's that interesting to say what Oppenheimer was. Was he or wasn't he? Uh, I don't know that it really matters. Other than he he certainly read, and this Chevalier says this about him, you know, that, oh, he knows more Marx than the Marxists, you know, that uh, he's read all of Karl Marx in the original. In German, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, of course, Oppenheimer never hesitated to let people know, you know, oh, yeah, I've read the whole, I've read all four volumes in the original language on the train here. <laughs> so, uh he, he, he learned have, Dutch. He learned, yeah. what was it, Dutch or something? You know, he uh, had a conference to give, and so he gave his his physics paper in the language, you know, that he learned on the train or whatever. So all of these forces, I mean, it is a very interesting time. And right in the middle of it, you drop a bomb. And, and of course, the what what is missing, as you're describing it, is any kind of deep moral sensitivity or, or a, a Christian, you know, I, I hit, hesitate to use the word Christian because, of course, all of these people, you know, Truman's going to be, they're all good Christians. But, of course, a, a real peaceable gospel would have been the only, the only place to stand to have a counter voice. Otherwise, I think what happens to us, our religion, first of all, is rendered toothless and meaningless. They're all Christians, you know, in a sense that the the guys on the the drop the bombs, the the politicians, that 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 doesn't play into it at all. But rather, these forces are coming together, and that is determinative. But let me pose like an even more difficult sort of um, issue at play here, and that is: is what if there is a moral? force at work here but it's not the, a christian morality okay that is is that what happens is is that communism and socialism is declared evil so that that means then that you know in other words it's anti-democracy it's uh chomsky talks about how language works here and how words you know carry all this weight and how they're used and things like that but if we can name whether it's the axis of evil or whether it's the communist or whether it's, it doesn't matter who it is, but if you name the evil, then by definition, what you're doing by your own moral sort of philosophy is the good. Truman, if the, if I have the quote right, I got it from chat GTP, GTP, so it very well could not be, and I didn't like research it real deep, but you know, Truman said that it was a, a, a basically a weapon of righteousness, you know, the, the atomic bomb. In other words, the, the other force that's at work here is I really think is the force of evil, a satanic sort of demonic force that transforms the good into evil and transforms evil into good. And where, you know, I'm not saying communism is good or socialism is good or whatever, or in the capital, you know, that we can have that conversation on a different podcast or whatever. My point though, is that if you have this moral force and this moral momentum where you gather the crowd and they all say, yeah, you know, that's communists are evil. You're held in suspicion. We know what this is like theologically. If you're not a fundamentalist capitalist, if you're not a fundamentalist when it comes to the war effort or whatever, you're automatically held in suspicion. So there's a power at work there. I think it's an evil power that, you know, is wielded to kill people, uh, right? They assassinate people. A, the, a huge role that the CIA has played is in the uh, trying to abolish socialism, especially in South America, but around the world, democratically elected people that aren't put in place probably by, you know, the imperial allies around the world or whatever. Right. But this is an interesting thing that happens here, right? Because it happens in the New Testament. This is exactly what's happening with, say, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees or whatever, or St. Paul or whoever that is, is that they're carrying out, they're carrying out evil but they're doing it for a righteous cause, right? They're they're going to put Christ to death for 
you know, really good political reasons and really good religious reasons. And it's going to be for the good of all the people that one man would die. Paul Axton says that the logic of evil, you know, is always to say, let us do evil so that good may come. That is a moral force. That is an ideology. That is a powerful sort of evil, deceptive ethic that transforms the reality of, you know, what the gospel is, that the gospel is a gospel of peace, of love, of forgiveness, of healing, of welcoming the stranger and the neighbor and clothing the, you know, and not, not dropping a bomb that, you know, rips their skin off or whatever, right? So in other words, these, what's happened with this ideology is that something's being tra- powerfully transformed and that something is like the consciousness of a people or whatever, right? Like this ideology is so powerful that even someone like Oppenheimer, a brilliant genius, it's it's an, almost an irresistible without the power of the gospel, without the power of the Holy Spirit or whatever you want to call it, right? Or just or even just a moral compass that I would argue would almost have to be grounded in some sort of, you know, real, I would just say Christ himself, but that, you know, it, it finds its Christ is where, wherever the truth and the good is. I think Christ is there in that. But I think that we see that this this weird force at work where it becomes a good thing to annihilate. 200,000 grandmas and children and, and cathedrals. And you know what I mean? It's just, it's a, it's just a horrible thing that they were saying is a righteous, basically weapon of God or, or, or whatever. But I'm afraid though, that they could be that the evil that they're saying is evil, maybe good. And the evil, you know what I mean? And it's like, and, and the, the thing that they're calling good is evil. And woe to the man who calls good evil and evil good. I do think that we're trying to articulate uh, a powerful force that, again, Paul says that we all get swept up into this thing. It is the it is a spiritual sort of battle. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.